Heavenly Father and gracious God, we bow in your presence and we ask that the Holy Spirit of God would open the word of God to all the people of God. Speak, Lord, for your servants seek to hear. In Jesus' precious name, amen. What can we learn from the call of David to be king? That's where we are in our series, His Story, this morning. If you'd be kind enough to turn to the Old Testament lesson, that's where we'll be. I'd like to make an introduction to it. I'd like to make two observations about it, and then I'd like to ask you two questions about it. So first, just a brief introduction so that we can all stay together with the flow of the narrative, so to speak. We're in a series called His Story, His Story for History, and we're doing the whole story of the Bible to give a sense of the flow of the great story of the salvation of the people of God. We've been through the patriarchal period in the book of Genesis. We've been through Exodus. We've been through the Ten Commandments. We made it toward the end of Moses, and he's died to Joshua, his successor. Joshua has brought them into the promised land. We've had the conquering of the land, and then we leap over, which we had Joshua in the battle of Jericho last week. We leap over this huge period of time, and now this morning we come to kingship. So I need to fill in for just a second. If you put the Exodus where most Old Testament scholars put it, you put it about 1250 B.C. We're now at about 1000 B.C. when the monarchy starts. So 250 years after the actual Exodus and roughly 200 years since roughly last week. And what happens after the... After, we're, we're moving at high speed. The, 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 the land that was conquered is divided into 12 parts. There are 12 tribes. And the 12 tribes inhabit the 12 parts. And without going into great detail, what happens, brothers and sisters, is Israel devolves. And when I use that word devolves, I mean devolves in the sense of disintegrates as a, as a culture and as a society. Every one of those 12 tribes begins to rule among themselves, begins to form their own identity. And then it becomes about each tribe and each individual and each family. And it climaxes at the end of the book of Judges with a scene which is so chaotic and so dark that they actually give a liturgical chorus for it at the end of the book of Judges. And it goes like this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And believe me, it was not fun. And then Israel did what a lot of kids do in school. I know I did this with my parents. I mean, all the other kids have a backpack. Well, Mom, where's my backpack? I mean, they're living in a chaotic time, and they look at all the other nations, and all the other nations have kings, and they say to the Lord, whose prophet Samuel is, is kind of leading the people of God at this period of time, they say, look, we want a king like them. We want to be like them. Everyone else has a backpack from L.L. Bean or whatever. I want a backpack. And, and Samuel says, you really don't want a king because if you get a bad king, uh, bad kings have a lot of power and bad people with a lot of power, that's really bad. You really don't want that. And they basically say to Samuel and to the Lord, up your nose of the rubber hose, we want one anyway. <laughs> and so they get a king. And Saul looks like a king. He sounds like a king. He has the the physical makings of a king. He has the genetics of a king. He has the resume of a king. But he doesn't have the character of a king. And not too long after he starts, he begins to get under stress. Surprise, surprise. That's what leadership is all about. And he fails the test repeatedly. For example, at one point he's told to wait for seven days. 
and something's supposed to happen, and it doesn't happen. And so, like a lot of other characters in the Old Testament, he decides to manage God's will for him, and he decides to act as a priest. problem is he's a king, not a priest. And Samuel shows up, and he's done the wrong thing. And Saul has literally has the kingship ripped from him. In fact, in one of the preceding chapters before this morning, Samuel actually has his robe, and it's, it's torn by Saul. And Samuel turns around to Saul and says, just as this robe has been torn, so your kingdom has been torn from you. And we have this incredibly weird scene where Saul now has the office of the king, but is not no longer the character of the king. And it says in chapter 13, God has raised up, it says, the phrase is great, a man after God's own heart to be king. And that's where we get to today. You all with me? So we've got a king. We had Saul. Saul hasn't worked out. In fact, Saul's been terrible. Now, truth be told, and we need to go back to the Sears catalog and get somebody else. Only, only this time, God's going to choose the king instead of the people choosing a king. And we're going to get a king with the character and the call of God. And Samuel's stuck in grief. He's mad. In fact, the preceding chapter says he cried all night. You ever been so mad that you cried all night? That's really mad. That's really disappointed. And he's stuck. Did you notice the way God starts in this passage? He comes to, to Samuel in grief, his prophet, and he says, Don't grieve. You know, he doesn't say that. Have you ever been with somebody in grief? You realize Job's friends, you know, the thing that they did right, they came and they spent time with him and they didn't say anything. You know when they got in trouble? They opened their mouths. You can think about that. The most important thing you do with somebody in grief is, is spend time with them. And if you want to do anything, ask them questions gently, like the Lord does to Samuel. And Samuel says, hey, Samuel, how long are you going to stay stuck here? It's a question that gets him to wake up out of his grief. And he says, i got a king. Go to Jesse's house. It's going to be one of his sons. So Samuel gets up. He goes to Jesse's house. And uh, he says, hang on a second. Uh, I know how this works. Saul is a feared king. His character is devolved. If I go there, they're going to think I'm coming to do something nasty. They might kill me. Saul might kill me. It's going to be an uprest. He says, just just offer a sacrifice. So he gets into town. He calls the elders. They say, do you come peaceably? Because they're scared. When was the last time a prophet visited your house? I mean, if a prophet comes to the front door, probably something to be nervous about, right? They're worried that God's got something to say. And they said, do you come peaceably? They're worried about Saul. They're worried about the prophet. They're worried about God. And he says, no, just sacrifice. And then you have this fantastic routine at the end of the chapter where you have these seven sons. And it starts with Eliab, who's clearly tall and incredibly attractive, probably plays basketball for the Chicago Bulls or the New York Knicks. And if you read the, read the story carefully, did you catch this detail? It says... Don't look on his outward appearance and his stature because he's very tall, probably 6'5". Really looks like he'd play a good forward, maybe even a center on an NBA team. Don't look on his outward appearance. Man looks on the outward appearance, it says in verse 7, but God looks at the heart. And, and he goes through all seven sons, all seven. And the Lord says, mm and it's getting exasperated. It's getting exasperated for Jesse, exasperating for Jesse. It's getting exasperating for Samuel. And it's getting really exasperating for the sons. And Samuel says, you don't happen to have any other sons, do you? And I want you to notice this detail because it's incredibly important for our purposes. His father says, oh, yeah, there, there's one other. You don't really, you don't really want him. He's, he's out tending to his tasks. Do you know he's the only one that's not named? So low is he held in esteem in his own family that his father won't even use his name when a prophet visits the house. That's how lowly he's regarded by his own family and by his own father. And they bring him in 
And he's the one that the Lord chooses. And he's the one that's raised up. And let's be clear about the importance of this scene, brothers and sisters. No one in the Bible outside of our Lord is more important than David. There are more than a thousand references to David in the Bible. Jesus Christ is not the son of Moses. He's not the son of of Abraham. He's not the son of the patriarchs. Jesus Christ is the son of David. No figure in the New Testament is as important as this guy. And God raises him up. What a remarkable story. Now, two observations and then two questions. The first observation is this. Isn't life apparently weird? If there's ever a story about the unexpected and strangeness of life, we're back to this theme again. Do you really think when the day began and God said to Samuel, now I want you to go pick a king, that it was going to go this way? Do you actually think that he went to to Jesse's house thinking, this is going to take just a little bit of time, maybe I'll choose the first son or the second son? Do you think at the end of this day, when Samuel looks at what God has done, does he say, oh, that's exactly how I thought this day was going to go? Absolute baloney. It's, it's a story about fear, danger, discernment, perspective, and especially it's about surprise. God chooses what is lowly in the world, 1 Corinthians says, to shame the wise. It's a very unexpected story. News flash. Life is weird. Life is mysterious. Life is not something we can control. It doesn't go the way we think. And part of being a Christian is our openness to what God is doing and the fact that we have to own the mystery of life. Do you understand this? Do you know this? Samuel had to lead a life of openness to the Spirit of God. His day did not go as he was expecting. His visit to Jesse's house did not go as he, as he was expecting. It didn't go as Jesse was expecting. It didn't go as Jesse's sons was expecting. Two stories, quickly. One mundane, one spectacular. First, the mundane one from our own household on Friday night. So it's about, uh, it's 10 to 7 on Friday. I'm at my desk in my office. I'm actually working on the sermon. My wife Elizabeth is in the TV room. And we live in Somerville back toward Knightsville School and we have this sort of more bucolic setting and this car pulls into our driveway, goes all the way down our driveway, comes to our garage, turns around in the garage and pulls back halfway near, near the front door. And I say to my wife, full voice from my office, do you have any idea who this is? And she says back to me, I haven't got the foggiest idea who this is. And I'm looking at, I mean, it's just not every day. You know, this is not a normal occurrence in our house. So I'm like, what the heck? The dog's going nuts. So I say, stay there. You keep the dog. So I go out. Uh, this very nice African-American woman rolls down her window. She looks at me. She puts a package in her lap. And she says, hello. She says, I have a package for, and then she pauses for a moment. She says, Elizabeth Harmon? And I said, yes, that's my wife. I know Elizabeth Harmon. She's fantastic. I used to work with her. This woman worked with my wife 23 years ago. You thought that, that I'd made her whole day. And she didn't give me the package. <laughs> she, she, she wanted to talk to my wife. I went and got my wife and she came out, made my wife's day, made my day. Did I think that was going to happen? I didn't even know it was a delivery. That's just weird. It's nice to be married to someone who hung the moon for somebody else. I admit it. But the, but the point of the story, the point of the story is simply this. I didn't expect the end of my Friday to go like that. I promise I didn't. It was the farthest thing from my mind. It was great. It was something that I had to be open to, not scared of. Here's the more spectacular example from 1971 in Peru. 
were with a scientist and her 17-year-old daughter. We're on a plane the day before Christmas, 1971. The scientist and her daughter are going to the inner part of the Peruvian rainforest. They're on a, an old Lockheed prop plane. They get in a, a terrible storm. The plane starts rocking to and fro. The cargo holds open. Uh, cargo starts dumping on the passengers. People start screaming. Lightning hits the plane. The plane is obliterated in a second. True story. This girl, 17 years old, she's strapped to a bench, and I quote, she plunged, you ready, 10,000 feet. That's almost two miles. The three-seat bench into which she was belted spun like the winged seat of a maple tree toward the jungle below. From above, she said, the treetops resembled heads of broccoli. She then blacked out, only to regain consciousness under the bench in torn mini-dress on Christmas morning. Her row of seats is thought to have landed in a dense foliage, cushioning the impact. She was the sole survivor of the crash. She's a scientist in Germany this day as we speak. She wrote a book called The Woman Who Fell to Earth. Can I explain that? Absolutely not. Is that strange? You better believe it. Do you think that she expected that? No. Do you think that changed her life? Absolutely. That's the way life is. Samuel's day didn't go as, you, as it was expecting. My Friday didn't go as I was expecting. That plane flight definitely didn't go as Julianne Diller was expecting. Hello, when are we going to come to grips with the fact that life is unpredictable, life is an apparent mystery, life is strange, you all with me? Point two, very important, and it goes right together with point one. Point two is this, God is sovereignty, sovereignly in control over all the strangeness of life to work out his purposes for good. This is a story about the goodness of God and the sovereignty of God. It's remarkable. All this mess, this people and Jesse's family and Samuel and the disappointment of Saul, and God raises up the great king figure in all of the Old Testament, David. The runt of the litter, as it were. One Old Testament scholar thinks he's 20. I think he might be between 15 and 16. He certainly doesn't have anything to offer the office of kingship as this story begins. It's a remarkable story of surprise. And this is the one who leads the Old Testament people of God. This is the king above all kings. This is the king from from whom Jesus gets the name, the son of David. God is working his purposes out. And this is a part of the sermon series where we get to benefit from the fact that we've been doing this for a while, and I can remind you of things we've done before. And can I remind you of the Joseph story and the end of it in chapter 50, after they've sold him into slavery, and he's ended up at the, as the executive vice president of, of Egypt, and his, his father has di- his, their father has died, and his brothers are still feeling guilty for the utter betrayal that they've done to their brother Joseph. And Joseph says, unforgettable language this. Don't you ever forget this. Look it up in Genesis chapter 50. You meant it for evil, he says, but God meant it for good. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So that out of the betrayal of his brothers came the salvation of an entire country and a transformation of human history because God is working his purposes out. So those are two observations, the unpredictability and strangeness of life and the sovereignty and the goodness of God. You with me? All right, two questions for you, then I'm done. The first is this. If you're going to deal with the unpredictability of life, brothers and sisters, you've got to wrestle with the fact 
that if life is unpredictable and if God is on charge, you've got to be guided. Here's the way that I would articulate my question. I want to put it to you this way. When are you going to let the Holy Spirit guide your life? When are you going to let the Holy Spirit guide your life and take off your firm grip on what you think life is about? Because God only works with people who are really guided and who are really open. And part of being a child of God is to realize that the Psalms are on to something when they say again and again and again, God is our guide. What is the most famous Psalm? You already know it. You already know it. The Lord is my shepherd. What does that mean? It means he's the shepherd and we're the sheep. What does a shepherd do with sheep? Another sermon for another time. They're dumb. But they they need to be guided. Sheep get lost. Sheep die very easily. They need to be guided. The whole of the Psalter, which is the prayer book of Jesus, is a story about being guided. Being They were led out of Exodus. They were led through the sea. They were led into the wilderness. They were led through the conquest. This is a story about the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day. This is a story about God guiding. It's not simply about God's unpredictability. It's about how you sit as a Christian in the midst of unpredictability. And can I just say, for our purposes, for the umpteenth time since we're in the middle of a pandemic, and we should all know this already, we don't know the future. If I see one more TV program where they put an expert on to tell us what's going to happen in the future, I'm going to scream. Nobody predicted the Delta variant six months ago. Hello? And we got all these people who are going to tell us the future. We don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. Maybe Jesus is going to come back. All I know is that God is good and God is here today and the only days we have are today and the great and terrible day of judgment. Those are the only two days the Bible cares about. So when you say the Lord's Prayer and you say, give us this day our daily bread, you also say, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil, which means what? Lead us. Jesus shows up on the pages of history and says, go ahead and do whatever you want. No, that's the Americanized gospel. That's not what it says. He says, come follow me. Be guided. Be a follower. Be open. When I was studying Greek in Pittsburgh, I had an incredible experience of of meeting William F. Orr, who's another story for another time. He's a New Testament scholar. William F. Orr was a prominent New Testament scholar. He had a stroke in his 70s, lost the ability to speak. He taught himself to speak English again, and then he taught himself to, to do Greek again, since he was a Greek and New Testament scholar. And he taught me Greek inductively at his house. It was, a, it was an incredible experience, and I didn't really learn so much Greek as I learned about God. You ever had a professor like that? It's really not so much about what the professor's teaching, whether it's insects or tennis or whatever. It's about what they teach you about your, your life and yourself. He was that kind of a guy. One day I walked in, and there was Mr. Rogers. And I, you know, you know me, I was like, my jaw was down near the floor, you know, and he was friends, uh, he forgot to tell me. I mean, I, I, it took me two weeks to recover. That was just a, that was just, a, that was just a regular experience with William Moore. So we're talking one time, we're talking about this very thing, guidance, the unpredictability of life. And he said, Kendall, this is it. You have to understand this. This is a Greek class, remember. One on one, only two of us in the room. Drift, he said. You've got to understand the whole of the Christian life is drift. And I'm sitting there, this is a Greek class, and I said, what do you mean drift? And he said, we are sailboats. The heart of the Christian life is being a sailboat. 
It's all a question of drift. He said, the Lord's spirit is always blowing. There are ordinary days when we're just flapping in the breeze. There are times, unusual times when, when, it, when it changes. And there are dramatic times when we go through storms. But they're all part of God's guidance. But what you have to realize is, if you're a boat, it's about putting up the sail and then watching where the wind blows. It's a fantastic image. It's stuck with me ever since. Kendall, it's all about one word, drift. Well, Samuel drifted through his day, and look at where he ended up, right smack in the center of the will of God. And here's the challenge, brothers and sisters. If you look back at last week, ask yourself this question. Is it possible that the Spirit of God blew somewhere in your life, and your sail wasn't up, and you missed it? Hmm. Or asking the question another way around, looking forward and looking more hopefully toward the future. Can you let go of the grip of your life of being in control of your life as so many Americans are told to do every single day and to open yourself to the fact that life is mysterious, that God is in charge and that you are being led and then be in awe and wonder of what God's going to do and just leave it there. You with me? That's number one. So it's about being guided. It's about asking the Holy Spirit to let you lessen the grip on your own life and let God the shepherd lead you as your, as his sheep. That's one. Two is this. It's about God's goodness. And now we're back. And Chris has said this in a previous sermon. I want to come back to it. We're right back in the garden. We're right back with Satan. We're right back in did, did God say? It's not simply that God's guiding this whole process, this whole weird, unpredictable, strange scene with Samuel and all these sons at Jesse's house and Saul and all this stuff. It's that God is doing it to work out his good purposes because God is good. And underneath the question, did God say, is the question, is God on your side? And underneath that question is, is God really good? And if Satan can get you to doubt God's goodness, you're sunk. You can't be a confident child of God if you doubt the goodness of God. So Eugene Peterson's father said to him every day, you remember I've said this to you before, but I just want to say two of the four things he said to him. He said, God loves you. He is on your side. And you've got to realize, brothers and sisters, Satan's full-time job is to whisper in your ear every day, every single day, all day, all night, this, God's not really on your side. You don't really think you have anything to offer to God, do you? And this is a story that reminds us that God really is not only guiding the mess of life, but that he's guiding it where he wants it to go. If you're taking notes, take down Romans 8.28. It's a famous passage. It's often twisted around, but I want to make sure that we get it right. God is working all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. It's a beautiful statement. God is working all things together for good. And I want you to think about this, this issue of God's goodness, and I want to challenge you with this. This is about trust. This is about trust. I was thinking of all the ways I wanted to, to get at this with you this morning, and I thought I'd just do it this way. I want you to think about Jesus, and I want you to think about Jesus from two perspectives. First, I want you to think about Jesus and the way he lived his own life, and then I want you to think about looking to Jesus as the leader of your life. So let me do it from those two angles. And here's the question. What if you think about Jesus and the goodness of God and this issue of guidance from the perspective of looking at Jesus and how he lived it? Ask yourself this question. Do you get the impression when you watch Jesus in the various scenes from the New Testament that he's worried? Does he seem to be a panicky person to you? Do you think that he's got a vice-like grip on his life and that if something doesn't go right, he gets mad or disappointed or frustrated? He's standing there and Pilate's right there and Pilate says, very frustrated Pilate is, he says, don't you get it? What is your problem, guy? 
I've got the power to hand you over to be crucified. And Jesus looks at him very calmly and says, you would have no power unless it was given to you from on high. He's implacable. At one of the worst points in his life, he's being handed over to death. He's got this incredibly powerful person, humanly speaking, standing there, threatening him. And he simply very calmly says, next. Why? Because he's being guided. Because he starts out every morning a long while before dawn. He goes to a quiet place and prays because he's always looking to his father. How did he end his life? Think about it. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Ask yourself this question. What posture did Jesus have when he said that quote from the Psalms on the cross? Answer, he trusted in the goodness of God. True? Now you have an advantage. You have not only Jesus' Father, but you have Jesus, because we are Trinitarian Christians. So ask yourself this question. If you think of Jesus as your shepherd, walking alongside you in the trenches of your life, is there any place in your life where God is not good and God is not in charge if Jesus is there? I mean, do you get the impression that if you ask Jesus for a rock, he's going to give you something else? If you ask him for stone, he's going to give you a rock? It's just not that kind of a person. Jesus is always outdoing people who come to him in their brokenness, and he's, they're always asking him for less, and he's always giving them more because he's so good. Here's the phrase from Paul I want you to attach yourself to. God is able to do, listen to this, far more abundantly than all that we ask or desire. That's the God whom we serve, and he's good. So what have I said? Just two things from the call of Samuel and the raising up of David. Life is unpredictable and strange, and God is in charge. And I've asked two questions. Are we willing to be guided, and are we willing to trust that God is good? As we are seated, let us pray. Heavenly Father and gracious God, we thank you for calling David the last son of Jesse. And we thank you that you are our king, the son of David, savior of the world, redeemer of mankind, the God who is able to do far more abundantly than we can ask or imagine, through whom all things were made, in whom all things hold together. Lord, grant us an openness to life and help us to let you lead us. Help us to be better, more open sheep and grant us more trusting hearts in your incredible and everlasting goodness. In the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen.